Good morning. So the parable of the bricklayers, the parable of the bricklayers, I don't doubt no few of you have heard it, whether or not you realize you have heard it, I'm sure that you, you have. Um, it has uh, ver- been variously told through the years. Um, it is actually based in, in some historical context. So I want to kind of tell you a little bit about this, you know, where it comes from and, and what it is, the parable of the bricklayers. Um, and its roots. So it was after the great fire of 1666 that leveled London, and the world's most famous architect at the time, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's said that one day in 1671, Wren observed three bricklayers, three different bricklayers on this one scaffold. One man was crouched, half standing, and one was standing tall, working very hard and very fast. Uh, actually, that was the, the third one. So one was uh, crouched, one was half standing, one is standing tall. The first one, the first one, Wren asked this question, what are you doing? To which he replies, well, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard, laying bricks to feed my family. Second bricklayer responded with a little bit more lightness in his voice, I'm a builder, building a wall. But the third bricklayer, the most productive of the three, and the future leader of the group, when asked the question, what are you doing, replied with a gleam in his eye, I'm a cathedral builder. And I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. See, the idea behind the the story and the point and why it's oftentimes told, and indeed why I'm relaying it to you now, is that it is absolutely vital that you know your purpose, that you know the big why, the, the meaning behind what you're doing. It makes a huge amount of difference just in the ordinary in terms of your work, your study, however old you may be, whatever your calling may be. It makes a tremendous difference in terms of how you do your work, but not just in terms of how you do your work, but how you do life. When you know what your purpose is, what your meaning is, the big why as to, well, why you're here. So then that brings a question, a question to the house here this morning. Do you know your why? Do you know your purpose? Do you know your, the meaning as to why you're here, what the point of it all is, and did you know that actually there is? Did you know that there actually is? for you, uh, for, for all of us. And, and I'm speaking most especially to us who are followers of Jesus. Um, now that takes us right into Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 in our text here for this morning. Uh, if you're trying to find that, if you're uh, flipping through your, your Bible, uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're pressing on. This is the second to the last one in the plan for uh, this series, hitting the high points, just moving through uh, this oftentimes ignored and much maligned book in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 19 is where we are. Yes, that's not a typo on the screen. We're going to read 37 verses. I do want to give you, yeah, I I, I caught that whistle. Um, I do want to give you a few trail markers just so you can kind of get a sense of the pacing, right? So, uh, on this road trip we're about to go on, here are the rest stops uh, a- along the way. So you have verses 1 through 10, that's one significant section of Leviticus 19. 
Then you have verses 11 through 18. That's like another interstate, okay? And then we're going to take another exit, and then that's verses 19 through 37. Throughout it all, there's one theme, and it's repeated again and again and again, the verbiage, through the course of this chapter. You shall be holy. It's said again and again and again and again. I could just read one of those verses, but maybe it'd be more appropriate to go to all 37, okay? Not that it's mentioned 37 times. However, if you want something to do over the next few minutes as I'm reading, count it up. Count it up the number of times you see that or something verbiage similar to that. And also this, how it's linked to how God identifies himself. I am the Lord your God. It's quite striking as we move through this chapter. All right, so Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 37. I'm glad we got this much to read. This is good. Let's go. Hear now God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord." You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you bear or wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free. 
But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with a ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Well, can we uh, pray together? I'm going to start us off in our time of prayer uh, by grabbing hold of some words from Psalm 119, uh, starting in verse 129. Lord, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Ah. <sighs> Lord Jesus, we know you prayed this. Indeed, more than just you prayed it. This is from you. This is from you, as are these wondrous words here from Leviticus 19 that you gave your people then and you give your people now. Clearly, we need to hear these words and grapple with them, what it means to be holy. Uh, we ask that you would help us to lay down the categories that we are bringing here to the table when that topic is, is raised. Uh, no doubt no bit of us is, is affected by uh, teaching that perhaps meant well 
but has not done us so well. Uh, no doubt some of it is just through culture and uh, infection of erroneous ideas that really are clearly uh, going to lead us astray. Uh, we ask for your mercy. This is something you want, so clearly it's something we need and you are worthy of. So with that in mind, we ask that you would teach our hearts now. Amen. So a few weeks ago, um, my grandson asked me a funny question. I got to tell you, I'm still getting used to that. Um, my grandson asking me questions. So anyway, uh, he says, Pop, what is that? And it's our carbon monoxide detector. And he's curious as to what this thing is and what it does. And so I'm trying to explain to this little dude that um, it detects, it picks up on, it can kind of see stuff in the air that we can't see or smell or touch. But it's still real. It's still there. We just can't see it or smell it or touch it. And I see this funny little look, and I can see the hard drive spinning, you know, behind his, in, behind his eyes. And I'm so glad he didn't ask me the question that the moment that that answer got out of my mouth, I was, I was like, oh, my, no, 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 no. I just set up the worst question in the world. Thankfully, it didn't go this way. And by the way, I didn't tell him about the lethality of, of the danger the, the, you know, that could kill you. I didn't, didn't mention that part. Um, but this is where I feared his next question might go. And it's like, oh, pop. So this detector, um, it can see stuff we can't see, and it can smell stuff we can't smell, and can feel stuff that we can't feel, but it's all really there. Oh, that's like God. Can it see God? Like, oh, I'm so glad that he didn't go there. So glad that it, he didn't go there. But it did, I got to thinking about that, and, and you know, it is a reasonable question to ask. Who is God? Right? Like, 101. Who is God? What is he like? What does it mean? Uh, what's a relationship with him like? Uh, how do we know that? How can we discern that? Well, that's what, those of you who've been a part of this series have we've been discovering here together, that's really what Leviticus, in many ways, has been pointing us towards. Remember, those of you, we took, we've kind of taken a, 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 um, an interval here, uh, Easter and post-Easter, but now we're getting back to this, the last two in the, in the series, and it's the Leviticus question, right? The Leviticus question is how we've been putting this. How can a holy God live with such a sinful people like ourselves. How is that possible? And what does it mean? And what does he want? What does he want in a relationship with such a people as ourselves? Not what does he need, because he doesn't need anything, but what does he want? What does he want for us, from us, with us? What, what is it, what about this relationship can we learn here as we're looking here in Leviticus and and let me just if I can come in at this angle think of it this way relationship relationship interpersonal relationship always affects the parties that are in the relationship right right you it, by you can't be in a relationship one with another person even if you steal yourself if you harden yourself well that you've just that just had an effect on you just by doing that so to, by definition, to be in relationship one with another party is to be affected, to be impacted by them. So you think in terms of 
when we're on equal footing with one another. So you think in terms of spouses and friends and coworkers and siblings. Well, that happens. That happens. We have an effect upon one another, right? Especially as, as time goes by. It happens, but not quite in the same way in when it's non-equal parties that are in that relationship. So parents and children, kings and their subjects, you know, where one party has power and influence over the other that the, that the if I can put it this way, the lesser party, the weaker party, does not have. There's, there's great influence and impact upon that le- lesser. How much more so with God and us? Because he's the greater party in this relationship. There's great impact. There's great effect upon us. There, there has to be as we are in relationship with him. Well, why am I raising this? Why does it, why does it that matter? Well, because of what our text is showing us, he is holy. This is who we as followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, people of the living God. This is being read from 1 Peter 2 a moment ago, a chosen people, a a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, people for his own possession. As we are in relationship with him, this holy God, what we're learning here is something, if we hadn't caught it already in the book of Leviticus, he is determined that we would be as well. He is holy, and he is absolutely determined that we would be as well. Well, maybe we might want to start asking some questions as to what that means and what that might entail. So we're going to drill into that for a little bit here this morning uh, in the time we have. So if you printed the outline, here's where we're going. And it's, it's, it's a progressive, it's building on itself, each one of these points. So the idea that, that holiness comes through, scripturally, biblically speaking, holiness is to be understood as something that comes through imitation. That's what Leviticus 19 is showing us. Holiness is something that comes through imitation. The imitation comes through obedience. The obedience comes through all of life. See how that builds on itself? So holiness comes through imitation. We'll talk about that. Imitation comes through obedience. We'll talk about that. Obedience comes through all of life. We'll talk about that, okay? Let's take a look at this just for a few minutes if we can. So first, imitation. What is that when we're imitating someone else? It means that we have set them up and we are following them now as a pattern a model, an example that we're going to walk in the steps of. Well, that's exactly what we see here in Leviticus 19. You look at the very beginning, the, f- the first of the two bookends of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's a life of imitation is what's being called for there. Holiness through imitating Him. Now, let's talk about holiness. Let's talk about God's holiness. And here we just need to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of confusion on this point because of the different ways we hear that word, holy, holiness, uh, being used oftentimes in, in, in mixed different ways. So we hear of holy wars, holy men, uh, holy land, holy water, holy grail. 
holy God. What does that mean? Holiness is the very essence of his nature. It's why in Isaiah 6, we, were, we sung it earlier, in Isaiah 6, as the seraphim, the angels, Isaiah gets this image of what's happening around the throne of God. The angels are singing to him again and again and again and again. Holy, holy, holy. And in Hebrew, in, Arama in Hebrew and Semitic culture, you need to understand that that means like, it can't be expressed when you say it three times. It can't be said any more strongly. Okay? So he is as holy as you possibly can speak of in vision. But what does that mean? It means, uh, when we're speaking of God's holiness, it means that he is set apart. He is unique. He is distinct. There is none like him. There is None that approaches him in terms of his being and his character. Okay? So that's what we mean when the angels and the seraphim are, are crying out, holy, holy, holy. That's what they're confessing and professing and lifting up and praising, eternally awestruck by them. Okay? What then does it mean for us to be holy? What, what does that mean? Because... There's a sense in which we already are as his people. Well, it means that we belong to him. That our service is to our life service, whole 24-7. Whatever that is, whatever your occupation calling may, may be, whatever your station and season in life may be, if you're a follower of Jesus, your service, there's a sense in which you're, it belongs exclusively, not a sense in which, strictly speaking, it, does, it belongs your service is exclusively to him. You have been separated apart for him and by him. You belong to him. And in that, you are becoming like him. You are to be like him. Why? He tells us, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And in case you didn't catch it the first time, in chapter 19, I'm going to say it 15 more times. I don't know if you caught the count, but it is 16 times. You get, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God, is an explanation as to why we are to be like him, why are we to live lives of imitation of him. Why? Because he is our creator. What does it mean to say, when he says, I am the Lord your God, it means at least these two things. I am your creator God. I have made you. In my image, according to my likeness, I made you. I am your creator, God. I am your redeemer, king. I bought you. I brought you out of slavery and bondage, not just to the Egyptian pharaoh, but ultimately, my people, to sin, Satan, and death. You're mine in the best possible sense, in the sweetest possible sense. And we know what that means. His cry over us is, you're mine, beloved. You are mine. I'm your creator, God. I'm your redeemer, God. I am the Lord, your God. This is what it means to live lives of holiness, holiness by imitation, following him. I'm just thinking in terms of imitation. I think back to uh, many years ago when I was in high school and playing varsity soccer and in the, in the early parts of the season, 
uh, we would run, and I'm not kidding, our coaches had us running nearly as much as the cross-country team because they were trying to really build some endurance uh, into us, right, so that we would not be fatigued, you know, in the waning minutes of the second period. Um, so we would run, and we would scrimmage, but we would drill. And, oh, we would drill. And our coach, I can still, rem- I can still picture this in my mind right now, he, he would show us, before he would introduce the new drill into a particular practice, he would take the ball and he would go out in front of us and whatever the arrangement of the cones were, he would show us, he would walk us through exactly what he wanted us to do and we wouldn't do it until we understood what it was we were supposed to do and then we would do it as he had done it. Exactly as he had done it. We were following him. We were imitating him. He was laying this path in front of us, and that was the only way that this was going to work, was if we did it the way he had shown us to do it, which then takes me to this application before we move on to the second point. God's character, his holy character, is the only, ultimately speaking, is the only sure, safe grounds we have for ethics, His holy character is the only sure, safe grounds that we have for ethics. Anything else, any other grounds, however well-intended you want to, to, to be in this, is going to ultimately get ensnared and trapped and enmeshed in the fog and in the mire of subjective opinion and personal preference. Ultimately, think with me. Think of the different things that are being called for here in chapter 19, okay? The, the, the different ethical stances, you know, in terms of interpersonal stuff. So we are to care for. Clearly, I hope you didn't miss it. If you missed it, you weren't paying attention. We are to look out for and to care for the marginalized and the disadvantaged around us. It could not be more clearly stated than what you see here in Leviticus 19. Okay? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as, as, as Micah puts it, uh, the prophet Micah puts it. We are to look out for the poor, the, the day worker, the handicapped, the slave, the elderly, the alien, right? And you might this morning be like, yeah, of course, but here's the thing. You have to have a deep why in that, of course. A deep why that's good and right and necessary to do that will sustain you past when it's inconvenient, when it's painful, when it's not fashionable, when the tribe of which you're a part no longer says that that's the cool thing to do. We have to have a deep why, and the deep why is ultimately only found, even when it's out of season, only found in the holy, eternal character of God. So yay and amen, if that's where your heart is. But do you know why that's where your heart is? Do you have that why? The Lord is holy, holy, and he calls his people to a life of holiness through imitation, imitating him. Okay, let's press on then here, if we can. Um, Moving into the second point, Imitation, imitation through what? Imitation through obedience. Lest we 
are, are, are left to guess uh, or try and figure it out on our own, he spares us of, of that and of the likely mistakes that we would make in that by showing us exactly what does this imitation look like, what path, what, what uh, pattern ought it to take. So you skip to the other. We looked at the first book in. Now we're going to the other book in. Okay, so the very end, verse 37. So what shape does this imitation take? It's obedience. Verse 37, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules. And by that, he means everything I just said. Everything I just said, okay, in the chapter. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Now, this is expressed in all kinds of ways. And if I had more time, I would drill down and explain some of the stuff about the you know, can I not get a tattoo now? And what's the deal about, because I know that's a thing for some of you, and, and what's the deal about interbreeding with cattle, and can I not wear a polyester cotton blend? I mean, there are good explanations to, 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 to get into that, and you don't need to just say Leviticus 19 is stupid because you don't understand it. There, there is some good, sound explanations to what's going on there, and if I had time, I'd get into it. Don't have time. We can talk about it later if you want to. But anyway. How is this expressed? Big, big 10,000 foot. So what are we seeing here in terms of these commands, these, this imitation through obedience to God's commands? What are we seeing? How is it expressed? Two ways. First, negatively. A lot of prohibitions are in here. Being uh, blocked off, um, walled off from doing what we might otherwise be inclined to do. Okay? So you have a, a, quite a few prohibitions in here. That's not the only thing. You also see some, uh, not just negatively, the prohibitions, but positively, we have some commands that are taking us, instead of blocking us from where we might want to go, are pushing us in directions that we should go and might not otherwise want to go. And what's interesting is when you look at the admixture of the positive and the negative all through Leviticus 19, you see a lot in here that's actually coming right out of the Ten Commandments. When you, go, when you go back and, and reread what's, what's here, or, and or applications thereof, uh, of those baseline principles. So that's something worth noting. How is this expressed in terms of the breadth of what we're seeing here? But not just that, this is something else that's worth noting, and that is why. What's the motive? Why is this to be pursued? This cannot be stated often enough in terms of why it is that we are to live lives of holiness through imitation, through obedience to God's commands, this cannot be stated more strongly enough and often enough to a group of people sitting in the seats in a sanctuary on Sunday morning because we are constantly getting confused here. It is not to merit God's salvation. It is not to merit to own, uh, to deserve God's salvation. As it is with the pagan gods who can be bought, who can be bribed, if we will simply do enough of the good and less of the bad. That's the way the pagan gods work. That's the way the fictional gods work. That's not the way the one true living God Works. He cannot be bought. He cannot be bribed. Our, it is, this is to be done, this life's, this life's pursuit of, of, of holiness through obedience in, uh, to his commands is not that we might earn or merit his salvation, but rather in response to his salvation. 
It's not to get something we don't have yet. It's to add response to something we're already eternally secure in. And that's why we pursue that. You think in terms of the, the historical flow of events here. What is the stage of relationship between God and His people even at this point? He has already saved them. He's already saved them. This is post-Exodus. He's already saved them. He's already their king. They are already His people. They have already been set apart. Now, based on all of that, here's how they're being told, shown to live. We are our calling, their calling, ours together as His people. Live lives of imitation through obedience to His commands. The how positively, negatively, the why in response to His grace. And there is so much security in that. And there's nothing but insecurity in the other path. There's so much security in understanding this and nothing but insecurity and anxiety crippling in the other. Some of you heard me uh, recount this piece of an interview before in uh, different places, different times. I'm going I'm to do it again uh, here. It's been quite a while since I read from this. But there's an interview. It's about um, a family that was... Uh, Going through adoption, okay? I know a family, this is the author, I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way she would earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by life in the orphanage. Thus, every morning when her parents came in her room, it was, it was immaculate, and she would sit on the bed and would say, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you love me? Well, of course, her words broke her new parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family, and after she knew that she was an inseparable part of the family's story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood correction and discipline to be part of what it meant to be the family. Brothers, sisters, fellow followers of Jesus, oh my goodness, that security is yours here this morning. Do you know that? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It really doesn't matter how badly you've screwed up. Do it again. It really doesn't matter how badly you've screwed up, how badly you've gone down the path into what you were supposed to avoid and did anyway. Or what you were supposed to do and refused to, despite it all. His security... His love for you is not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's unshakable. Now, you hear that. Now, your first impulse might be to want to test it, and you can do that, but if you're really hearing it, you'll never want to. Who'd want to test that love? Such love. He is holy. He's called us into a life 
of holiness, of, of, of imitation and obedience, and even in that, when we screw it up, we can rest. We can rest. Well, that then takes us to the third point. The third point. And uh, so, how far does this go? You might be wondering. So, holiness and imitation and obedience and how far does this go? It goes into all of life. And that's what you see being put forward in verses 3 through 36, where about every arena of life is covered that you can think of. And I'm not going to go back and reread it. You, you, know, you endured it the first time. I'm not going to make you do it a second time. Um, I encourage you to, do it, to, to read it again. But do, let me, uh, if you can handle this, let me read you this quote from Christopher Wright. I, he printed out the bulletin. It's in your quotes and notes. Christopher Wright, it's in his uh, commentary uh, on Leviticus. And uh, this, this is what he says. This chapter is headed with the motto of this half of Leviticus, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The rest of the chapter dispels any idea that holiness in the Old Testament was merely a matter of ritual purity. It was to be displayed in every corner of practical life, from the corners of your beard to the corners of your fields. Holiness, therefore, was not something that you pursued by retreating from everyday life into some religious sanctum. Holiness meant transforming everyday life by the quality of behavior that was utterly different from the surrounding ways of the world. Yay and amen. Uh, he, he gets that absolutely right. And what's interesting to note here, when you drill down into uh, especially this middle section uh, of Leviticus 19, is to note how this comes out so clearly in the relational sphere. Horizontally. Interpersonal. The everyday, the stuff, you and me. How this comes out, that, that, uh, which then shows us that holiness is never, rightly understood, is never to be understood as an abstract concept, which is usually how we think of it. But it's never to be un to understood simply as something that we blog about or listen to podcasts over or attend seminars about or read books about or just preach sermons about. Holiness is not meant to be something that's abstract. It's supposed to be a, meant to be a, a lived, a felt, lived reality that shows itself up in relationship that we do justice and mercy and faithfulness that we live lives with one another between one another together set apart unique and distinct from the rest of the world as god is as his holy people so the way we do relationship the way we do justice mercy and faithfulness should look completely different than the rest of the world because we're a holy people does that make sense? That, maybe it's getting us a little further towards understanding what it means to be holy like he is, is holy. And as we live as his set-apart people in this world, we will stand out. Right? I mean, if, you, if we are indeed living lives of distinction and difference for his glory as his holy people, we will stand out in this world because we will be such oddballs salt and light a city on a hill as jesus so beautifully sums it up there in the sermon on the mount 
So we see this, some, some powerful stuff here, the, the, the location of, some of the so much of the application here in the relational sphere. And as such, it's a living demonstration, a living demonstration of his kingdom, of his character. From the very beginning, there is a, a missional aspect to this, a missional um, transformative aspect to this as we show forth God's character and we demonstrate God's kingdom coming and coming having come and coming in the full one day that the nations might see that the nations might taste and see that the Lord is good that they might taste and see that the Lord is good just as we have begun to taste of that ourselves that their appetite that their longing that their ache would be, if I can put it this way, teased and a longing such that they would want to know more and more of this one that we are coming to know ourselves. Holiness, imitation, obedience, all of life, all of life. As we live such lives of holiness to be set apart, unique, and distinct, as we live in holy relationship one with another. Again, the world will notice, or if I can just put it this way before we wrap this up, justice, mercy, and faithfulness are certainly not all there is to outreach. Let's be clear. But it's part of it. It's part of it. I mean, isn't that not what Jesus himself says in, in John chapter 13? Could he be any plainer in, in what he says? John 13, the very last, well, not the last, but the, towards the end, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God is holy and he's calling us to live such lives in all of life. Now, I want to end by going in a, very, a direction that may seem really strange to you at first, but just stay with me, okay? I want to talk about an, the egomaniac for a minute, okay? What is an egomaniac? Well, an egomaniac is someone who's caught up in egomania. End of story. No, but okay, but what does that, that mean? It's someone who's just refers, I put it this way, refers to themselves and maybe only to themselves exclusively and mostly boastfully. They live by the selfie. They're never going to take a picture of you. It's always a selfie, maybe on a stick. Okay? Let me give you an example. That's the definition. Here's the example. As the brains behind the Roby House, Falling Water, Talesian West, the Guggenheim, and countless other design benchmarks, Frank Lloyd Wright is arguably the genius of 20th century architecture. And boy, did he know it. Wright was notorious for believing he was superior to mere mortals. In fact, the architectural egomaniac frequently acted as though the rules, even those of geography and climate, did not apply to him. But when you're right, you're right. In fact, in 1935, department store magnate Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus fame commissioned the architect to design his Dallas home, but the project quickly went sour. Wright's avant-garde floor plan included sleeping porches that required his client to sleep outdoors year-round. In addition, Marcus's small bedroom cubicles came equipped with almost no closet space. 
When Stanley respectfully explained that A, temperatures during summer nights in Dallas often exceed 80 degrees, and B, high fashion tastemakers might need bigger closets, right through a series of tantrums. Well, fortunately for the voyeur and all, and all of us, said tantrums usually took place in letter form, and you can occasionally read these letters at the Dallas Museum of Art. Now, the reason I, go, I want to raise this uh, image of the egomaniac is this. So God is saying, I want you all to be like me. You see where I'm going with this? God says, I want you all to be like me. Is God the cosmic egomaniac? Is that a fair question? Slightly blasphemous. But perhaps it's a reasonable question to think about just for a second. No. The reason is that he is the one being who is rightly settled upon all things centering around himself. He's the only one who can be rightly settled on that score. He is, if I can put it this way, the sun around which the planets must orbit lest everything fly off in crazy directions and be destroyed. So for him to insist upon this is not destructive but constructive. Really, we could say reconstructive. I mean, for anyone else, anyone else to say, to be centered upon, like Frank Lloyd Wright, that's egomania. That truly, it's, it's madness, egomania, but not with him. With the Lord, he is calling us back. When he says, I want you out of love for you, and because I know you so well, I want you to be like me, he's calling us back to our original design. He's calling us back to a life of flourishing. When he says, I want you to be like me. You know, in fact, he's so devoted to this, he died to make it happen. He rose to make it happen. And if you're a follower of his today, he indwells you such that slowly but surely, he's making it happen. This is really good news. Really, really good news. We really understand that God is holy and he has determined that we would be as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this eternal plan, your unshakable purpose, your desire that we would belong to you, become like you, that we would be set apart, unique and distinct. for our great eternal good and indeed for the world's as well that they might know you. Help us to hear this when we hear you saying, you shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Help us to hear this not, not in the way we so instinctively do as restrictive, but as beautifully expansive and compassionate, a mark really of your love for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.